An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Hello, welcome back to the Prestige TV podcast feed. I'm Joanna Robinson. It is too late for Halloween. It is too early for Mardi Gras. But nonetheless, we are here to talk about a spooky New Orleans extravaganza it's Interview with a Vampire, and Charles Holmes is here with me. Hi, Charles. How are you? I do declare I'm so honored to be here talking about wow. Interview with the Vampire. Wow. <laughs> so I was ill-prepared for your incredible <laughs> Southern accent. Oh, I've been, I've, I've been doing it alone in my apartment for a <laughs> week. It's bad. So nonstop Southern, do you do you try to do the, the Lestat French accent as well, or is it just the... The New Orleans accent. Oh no, I try to do I try to do that and I like interview with the vampire so much that like in the first episode, Lestat does like the vampire look, but he's trying to like seduce people. So I just uh -huh. randomly started doing it to my girlfriend and she was not pleased. Can I see an example over Zoom right now? <laughs> wow. Oh. <laughs> oh wow. I'm so sorry that this is uh, like a an auditory medium because the eyes, the pout, the like everything was there. It was incredible, Charles. It was like a great vampire. Can you tell how hyped I am? Can you tell how excited I am? I am over the moon because like, here's what happened. I watched it over the vampire. I became obsessed with it. I love it. And then I was talking to our boss, Bill Simmons, and I was like, I really want to do a prestige about interview. And he's like, well, let's see if Charles will maybe watch it. And I was like, he's like, Charles isn't sure it's going to be his thing. But, you know, for you, Charles will try one episode. And then you came back and you were like, I love it. Right? <laughs> you love it? I was so thrilled. Bill called me and he's just like, hey, uh, why don't you just watch one episode? I was like, 
I actually, I realized in retrospect that I lied to Bill because he's just like interview with the vampire. And I did the very like man thing where I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm that into romance, but we'll talk about it later. I'm like, Charles, you not only watched every single Twilight movie, you read every <laughs> single book. Like you literally read every single book. What the fuck are you talking about, Charles? <laughs> like, uh, this is, <laughs> put it in your veins. Like I completely blocked uh. out a lot of my uh, emo high school experience where I was very into romance. So this was up high school Charles's. Oh my God. Welcome back. All right. So we're going to talk about the whole season, seven episodes. They have all, you know, dropped on AMC TV plus by the time that, you know, this podcast will have dropped in your feed. Uh, we're going to do like a little, like a little slight, sort of similar to what we did with the bear. Uh, go listen to that if you want to. And this is also just another excuse for me to talk to Charles about journalism because Woo! this is sneakily also a show about journalism, but we're going to, we're going to talk about sort of, some of the bigger picture ideas, some of our like larger takes and then sort of get into more specifics. So if you haven't seen the show yet and you want like sort of our take on whether or not you should, we'll talk about that a little bit before we get into the details. And then you can sort of press pause, go binge watch seven episodes, try out your Southern accent, try out your vampire <laughs> seduction looks, and then come back and, and listen to us talk about uh, the whole season. I'm going to just hit you quickly with some programming reminders uh, while, while I have you folks here on the Prestige feed. Bill and I are doing White Lotus every Sunday, so you can listen Ooh. to us. Van, uh, Van and Charles are doing Atlanta. Where, where are we with Atlanta? Last Charles. episode. You guys have been doing such a killer, killer job with Atlanta. And I'm so excited to have more Charles on this feed in general. Very excited. Woo! And then the speaking of bad romances, messy, toxic romances, Mallory Rubin and I will be covering The Crown. Uh, uh, what, a, what a glorious five. time. What a glorious, <laughs> glorious time. Do you, uh, do you like to watch messy people be messy with each other? Then come to Buckingham Palace, because that's what The Crown is about, as far as I'm concerned. Spoiler warning again. I don't know. We're going to talk about this season, and I'll let you know when we're going to talk about details. But, like, beyond that, beyond this season, like, I actually only have a vague knowledge of what happens in the book, so we're not really going to talk about that that much. Oh, I, I'm not going to talk about it, but I did go on Wikipedia. I'm like, hmm, what happens? <laughs> oh, what happens to Louis and Lestat? All right. Just some like background information. This was created by Roland Jones, and I was like so impressed. Like when I watched the first episode, it was so much better than I felt like it even needed to be. That's that was my impression. I was like, they've got this IP interview with a vampire. Like it's a known property. They could have sort of medium assed it, you know, if they wanted to. They whole ass like this is this. They went for it. So you can so tell impressed. this is classic TV. This is cla this is someone yeah. who knows how to make a pilot episode enthralling. So Roland Jones has worked on Friday Night Lights, Weeds, Boardwalk Empire, United States of Terra, like these great shows. But also the first two episodes were directed by Alan Taylor, who has done um, some, like some classic Sopranos episodes, Lost, Mad Men, Thrones, is coming back for House of the Dragon to be like the EP. So like this is, he's also made some movies that are not great, but the man can direct an episode of television. Um so those are some of the the people behind this. And then Anne Rice and her son, Christopher Rice, are listed as EPs, uh, executive producers on the show. Anne Rice died in December of last year. So, um, you know, she didn't get to see the final product of this. But um, my understanding is that they were much more hands-on with this than they were with, you know, the Tom Cruise, uh, Brad Pitt film or Queen of the Damned or anything else that's been adapted from we her need works to, in We the need past. to talk about 
1994 movie because I watched it for the first time or I got <gasps> halfway through. Uh, I, I was not happy. I can't wait to talk to you about this. Right, yeah, so this is based on her 1976 book, Interview with the Vampire. There's a ton of books in this series. AMC dropped a fortune, though I don't know how much, but to buy like the rights to all of Anne Rice. I don't think it's all of Anne Rice's book, but like a ton of Anne Rice's books. And they're basically making this like IP universe, the Immortals universe on AMC. They are the Mayfair Witches is the next series. And it's dro- like they already said on press screeners, it's dropping like beginning of January. Like they're rolling right ahead with this whole franchise that they're building. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the 1994 interview with a vampire uh, movie that is not this is not a prequel or a sequel or have anything to do with that movie. They are like ignoring that that movie happened. But this is Tommy Cruise, Brad Pitt, Kirsten Dunst. Tony Banderas. It's the mid '90s height of their. Well, Kirsten's just starting, but height of their potency. Why did you hate it, Charles Holmes? So, I was not prepared for this. I was just like, you know what? In prep, I'm just gonna like watch it. Yeah. And Sam Reed plays Lestat in the AMC version, right? Yes. Yes. The drop in quality from <laughs> Sam Reed is Lestat. And Tom Cruise, who literally just, Lestat is from Paris, and like Tom Cruise just has his regular white dude voice. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, like, of course, you know, I read about Interview with the Vampire, how we had homoerotic undertones, but maybe not as fully proudly gay as the AMC version. Man. You cannot get two straight men. <laughs> with as little interest and like I'm just like can y'all smolder at each other a little bit more can I get a little something neither of you are trying at all to convince me like I don't know what Tom Cruise is doing like he's yelling in the Tom Cruise way the same way he would yell at like the recruits in Top Gun Maverick I just don't understand <laughs> what the movie was can you explain to me because I was like when I realized the movie got positive reception it did pretty well I was just like was it a different time in 94? I mean, it was, but what I would say is that, um, I mean, first of all, we were a little more starved for vampire content, right? Because this is like True. before the Buffy Vampire TV show, before Twilight, before True Blood, before like vampires were everywhere. This is like early vampire erotica content. And I would say at least, I don't think you got to him, but at least Antonio Banderas is like trying. Honestly, oh, he's trying. Movie. I got to him. Yeah. Antonio Antonio's trying. Um, I think a lot of what's ha- happening with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt in 1994 is that they are just like so famous and like s- like these hugely famous sex symbols that they're just coasting on that. But like, so Tom Cruise as Lestat works only if you are existing in the world of the mid-90s where Tom Cruise is a sex symbol. This is before he hopped on Oprah's couch. This is before <laughs> we knew about Scientology. This is before he turned into like that weird guy who was trying to kill himself for our entertainment Mission Impossible Top Gun Tom Cruise. He was like people's sexiest man alive, Tom Cruise. And so it was just a different, yeah, it's a different time. I, both I of them get are that sexy. It Don't get me wrong. They're both very hot at the peak of their like well, actually, I would say they've aged. Both of them have aged like fine wine. But I will say this: Mwah. yeah, Tom Cruise and Brad. I guess I was a little, I was a little spoiled watching Interview with the Vampire on AMC because it is so just like 
is it the first episode where there's a full on like gay sex scene? I'm like, let's fucking go. And in like, yeah, the movie, I'm just like, <laughs> can y'all smooch at least once? Like, what am I watching? This is weird. <laughs> I was not happy. If they're not boyfriends, like the whole thing doesn't really make sense. It makes right? no <laughs> sense. It makes no sense if they're not boyfriends. It's just like yeah. two dudes. Like it's essentially what the movie is, is like two frat bros being like, we're going to be friends forever. I made you a daughter. Don't worry. We're not gay. <laughs> and I'm just like, the story doesn't work, guys. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I do have like a nostalgic affection for that movie. Kirsten Dunst is incredibly good. Uh, that's like <laughs> so a very fun. early Kirsten Dunst uh, performance. So she's pretty, pretty great. The wigs are something to behold. Ooh. But like this, this blows it out of the water as far as Easily. I'm concerned. Like this makes that movie look ridiculous, honestly, by comparison. So let's talk sort of like in a non-specific, non-spoiler way, just like some of the stuff that we love. You already mentioned Sam Reed. I will just say that I think Sam Reed and Jacob Anderson as Lestat and Louis are just absolutely incredible. Jacob Ooh. Anderson, who I know very well from Game of Thrones, who played Grey Worm for years and years and years, but that character is so written to be so one note. And I would see Jacob Anderson in interviews and he'd be like so charismatic and then I would watch Grey Worm and I was like, what? I don't know. There's no there there. And then he just like shows up as Louie and it's like you spend the whole first episode with him as a human and getting to know him as a human. And there's just so much warmth and like conflict and pain and like passion and humanity like just gushing out of him in that pilot episode. The monologue that there's a monologue that he gives in a confessional um, I said we weren't going to be specific, but I'm sticking to the first episode, so it's okay. Like that, that I was just like, I was just blown away by. So, like, how, what do you think of the cast in general, Charles Holmes? I think that this show lives and dies by the chemistry between Louis and Lestat, and it especially lives and dies by how quick Jacob Anderson can get you to care about Louis, because almost immediately, the minute they go back in time, because at first. I was a little like, I'm like, what is this? When when yeah. you first meet the interview and all the modern stuff. But the minute they go back in time and you see Jacob Anderson as Louis before he's a vampire and you see just like how charming he is, how electric he is, how he's all it's this tight wire act. You understand why Lestat is like you. I want to be with you forever. Like. And immediately, like, you're gone. And that's probably why I know a lot of people love Sam Reed. I love Sam Reed. He does such a good as, job as Lestat. But I have to give kudos to Jacob Anderson being able to play this character through the decades. And you can tell through these seven episodes how much he changes. I, I can't speak highly enough for Jacob. He killed him. I think I agree with you. Like when it started and we're in the modern, there's like, you know, it, it takes place in 2022 in Dubai. There's some pandemic stuff in there that I was like, do I want pandemic stuff? Like what's going on? Um, and then it turns out that it, I think works really well thematically. And yeah, Jacob Anderson's doing his like almost gray worm, like super serene, like, and I was like, oh, is this what? And then you, and then, and then when the contrast, when you get the contrast of Louis when we meet him versus yeah. that, then the modern stuff starts to really make sense and really like engages you. And I think also having Eric Bogosian, who plays Daniel Malloy, the journalist who is played by Christian Slater in um, the Neil Jordan movie, um, that adds a layer of, when I see Eric Bogosian, who a lot of people know from 
uh, succession. He plays the sort of like Bernie Sanders type senator on that, but like has been a fixture uh, for so long in theater and television and film. That's like a prestige jump to me when I see him. And I just like, um, as a journalist, as as a fellow journalist, Charles, how do you feel about journalism representation in uh, in Daniel Malloy here? I think, honestly, if I'm going to be real, there was a lot of like journalism bullshit in terms of just like whatever people do a show about journalists, they make journalists seem like way more cool than normal. But the thing that they got right, the thing that they hit is of just like, oh, yeah, this would be uh, a very celebrated journalist who would have worked at a glossy magazine like Vanity Fair or GQ or Rolling Stone. Oh, Rolling Stone, en- yeah. Yeah, at the end of his <laughs> life, just being like, his kids hate him, his family hates him, he's alone, no one will hire him. It's <laughs> just like, yeah, that's where most of uh, the people I looked up to are now. Like, you guys got it. I actually think it was genius aging him up in terms of like this story because just the chemistry between uh, Daniel and and Louis is so much more different when it's a journalist at the end of his life versus a journalist at the beginning. I was just like, oh, this is that was a stroke of genius doing that. This is we're going to talk um, more specifically about some of the other adaptive changes they made. But this is like one of the big adaptive changes they made is that the book takes place in the 70s in San Francisco. And so what they premise for the TV show is that um, that interview happened. Younger Daniel Malloy did interview Louis um, Dupont du Lac in San Francisco in the 70s. But 50 years later, he's getting another shot at the interview. So adding that tension, adding that layer of time passing and Daniel feeling even more the weight of mortality, they have him be, he's he's ill with Parkinson's. Um, He, the pandemic is going on. Um, he has had all these crushing disappointments. That added layer of like dense, dramatic chewiness and the regret yeah. and the loss that he feels that mirrors like a lot of what Louis is, is grappling with. A stroke of genius. Absolutely brilliant choice. And then I also just want to talk about the money that I feel like we see on 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 the screen here. Like oftentimes, we are both fans of genre. Oftentimes, genre stuff... You know, we're watching Andor right now. That's like top quality, like peak TV, great shit. But like, I am used to watching stuff that feels very rickety budget wise. Especially is, some of the vampire TV shows. Yeah, that I've the watched vampire in my day. Stuff. Yes, yes. But this is expensive and you can see it. They built this whole back lot that's just like, the streets of New Orleans and they shot on location in New Orleans and the costumes are incredible and the production design is incredible. And like one of my favorite details is they have all these contact lenses that they put in the vampires that are book accurate, like how they're described in the book. But they have, uh, I was watching behind the scenes where they have like all these different pupil settings for the contacts, depending on levels of arousal and ferocity. So like the pupils will dilate uh, or, or blow out depending on how the person's feeling. So I'm just imagining them like in a scene, just like swapping these contacts out. But like, that's just like a level of detail and a level of money. And they didn't do it digitally. They did it practically that like makes this world feel so rich and real, despite the fact that we're talking about vampires. Uh, Charles? What do you think about how this show looked? I think what, and it's interesting that you, because I didn't realize until today, and then you brought it back up, that they want to make this Anne Rice universe into 
something probably similar to The Walking Dead because it gave me similarities to what The Walking Dead did for zombies. It's obvious mm. AMC wants to, to do that with vampires because everything from the gore to the costuming to the locations, I was just like, oh, no, you want this to look good. Like you want, you're telling me that this isn't bullshit. Cause in the back of my mind, I'm like, I don't know. all right, cool. First episode, I'm like watching, I'm watching, and I'm like, oh, this, to your point, like this looks good. Everything looks like I feel like I'm in New Orleans. I feel like what they're wearing, even as you go, what Lou, Louis' wardrobe at is, it starts to change and how the opulence starts to come in and like how he goes from having like, he has, how would you say in 2022 parlance, like he owns a a brothel? Brothel, yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I was struggling with the, he's a, I'm just going to say madam, the male version of a madam. Is, yes, is and as, he, him, as right? he goes in his career and becomes more successful, just that change of wardrobe and the, the, the places get bigger, they get more decadent. I was, I was floored. I think they did. They got me. I know I'm, I am a, a a simp for things looking good and looking expensive, but hey, they got. Me. Just think they didn't have to go as hard as they went, and they went all as hard as they as uh, as they decided to go. It's appreciated, and I like and I love. Um, I was I was reading an interview with the production designer, and she was talking about how she wanted to avoid all the vampire cliches of like burgundies and blacks and like hyper gothic and yeah. all sort of like stuff that we've seen in twilight or in the vampire diaries like the the skip the like the color schemes that we're familiar with um and and so you have a lot of like just period accurate like art nouveau new orleans style stuff and and like of the color palette of the era and it doesn't like you don't have to go overboard with the vampirism because they've got fangs and they like you know are sucking people's blood. So like that, that's there. You don't yeah. have to then like dress them in velvets and brocades. It's fine. Like we're doing This doesn't fine, look like so. hot topic New Orleans. This looks like period <laughs> accurate New Orleans. Oh my god, hot topic New Orleans. Oh my god. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Okay, so 
you mentioned this like franchising thing they're going to do, right? They bought the rights to 18 Anne Rice books. They're doing witches. We get we get a couple mention of the Mayfair witches in this. Like if you know that they are doing that, you will hear them reference sort of the Mayfair witches a couple times in in this season. So they're like laying the track for this interconnected universe right from the jump. Whereas The Walking Dead, that was sort of like a thing that they did later. We're like yeah. many seasons in, they're like, oh shit, this is our cash cow. Let's start like trying to make this feel like an interconnected universe. But something like a barrier of entry I've heard from a lot of people who are interested in watching the show is that they don't have AMC, they don't have AMC Plus. Like this is something that AMC bought and AMC is trying to make like AMC plus must have streaming platform. I don't know that it's going to do like what better call Saul or breaking bad or some of the other AMC shows did, which is like, then they're going to stream it on Netflix and people will catch up and then like come back and watch it. Like watch season two. I think they're going to keep it exclusive to AMC TV plus. So I'm curious, Charles, like anecdotally, like, do you know people who have AMC? Have you heard from people who are interested in like, are like, but I don't have AMC. So how am I going to watch this? Like, what do you, what do you think about like, is this a shiny enough lore to get people to sign up for this platform? I mean, anecdotally in my life, (laughs) I have never (laughs) had AMC plus. I downloaded it. I got my seven week uh, free trial because Joe, you're my friend and I was very excited to watch this. So do I think that this will get them a lot more uh, viewers? Uh, subscribers. Yeah. Subscribers? No. I do think that they need the Breaking Bad thing to happen. I do think that this is something that would be well served by sending it to a place like Netflix, having it be number one across the world, because I do think it has that level of absolutely just fervor, where I'm just like, oh, this is a show where it doesn't matter who you are your orientation, who you are, black, white, whatever. You're going to love this show. I do think it would have been smarter if you send this to something like a Netflix. And they'd be like, all right, for season two, we're shutting it down. Uh, But hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the AMC uh, bigwigs know something I don't. And maybe, I mean, I haven't heard definitively that they're not going to do that, but I really hope that they do because like, I understand that they're trying to compete with Netflix and that's the whole point of this purchase. But I think they can like use Netflix briefly or Hulu or some other platform to, yeah, get people hooked in this and then have them. Yeah. Cause I'm having trouble. Like I cannot shut up about the show. And like some people I know are like, I don't have AMC. I don't know what to tell you. So get the seven week free trial. I watched this in seven. I mean, seven day free uh, trial. I watched this in seven days. You'll be good. Yeah. Exactly. It's all up there now. So, okay. We're going to, now we're going to get into like some more specific specifics of, of episodes and stuff like that. So you haven't watched it and you want to bounce, press pause, go download your free trial, come back. We'll be here. But I want, I want to take this opportunity. There's so much actual Anne Rice writing in this show. It's one of those book adaptations where you can tell that they just airlifted like full yeah. paragraphs of dialogue into the show. Um, and I want to play this thing from the pilot. This is the first time where I was like, oh, they just, oh, they just lifted. And that's great. So let's hear, <laughs> let's hear the moment when Louis de pont becomes a vampire. The blood. It came with a dull roar at first. And then a pound. Like the pounding of a drum, growing louder and louder, as if some enormous creature were coming through a dark and alien forest, a huge drum. And then 
there came a pounding of another drum, as if another giant were coming behind him, each giant intent on his own drum, giving no notice to the rhythm of the other, throbbing my lips, fingers, and flesh of my temple. Above all, in my veins, drum and then the other drum. Hell yeah. All right. So here's the deal. Vampire stories are, should be horny as hell, right? And Anne Rice has always been horny as hell. I feel like TV in general needs to be hornier than it is right now. TV and films in general need to be hornier than they are. I feel like we've moved away from like the we 90s. become Puritans as a society, horny. Yeah. as a TV viewing, movie viewing public. I agree. And just like, wow, that, that was so good. And I think the line where he says like dark and alien forest. I was like, that's when I was like, oh, this is just straight Anne Rice. That's what this is yeah. right here. Um, so my question to you, Charles, I know that you like just experienced the 94 movie. What is your like awareness in general of Anne Rice as a, as a writer, as a cultural fixture? And then, I, I mean, you've already confessed to being a Twihard Twilight fan, but like what's your larger vampire uh, media relationship? Uh, so I didn't really know that much about Anne Rice, like I had heard about Interview with the Vampire, but I think the movie was a few years before my time and just like I just never read the book, but I was aware of it. And in terms of like my connection to vampires, uh, yes, I've read all the Twilight books. I also <laughs> in college uh, watched so much Vampire Diaries and the spinoff with uh, whatever is the originals, the originals. <laughs> like I watched Vampire Diaries to the point where it got so bad. And I was still watching it week to week where it was just like, this is when they were like killing people and reviving them like every other episode. Uh, so <laughs> my propensity for just like vampire bullshit is through the roof. I've seen about half of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I'm, I'm not a vampire expert, but I've waited in probably not the greatest literary waters. <laughs> if you've gone all the way through if you've gone all the way through the vampire diaries i feel like i feel like you have a claim to something uh i can't remember if i finished the vampire diaries but i did go definitely went further with it past the point of it being good that is yes. true um the horniness of vampire culture i just want to say like Stephanie Meyer being a, a repressed Mormon and being the author of like the major vampire fiction of the early aughts, I think did real damage to like how horny vampire stuff should be. I think True Blood on HBO, one of like the peak horny shows, one of the peak like summer guilty pleasure horny shows that ever existed is like is closer to where we should be. And we're on AMC, so we're not HBO level of horny but we do get we get butts like they we can do, do get like butts. we get, we get a lot of movies a lot of a lot of uh yeah. topless looks. and butts yeah. yeah a lot of thrusting <laughs> this is a very yeah. to your point that's also what hooked me because i agree i'm like not only should vampire shows be relentlessly horny but they need to be hokey i want my romance over the top this isn't normal day romance i want people writing to like to kill themselves if they don't get their injection of love today. I need that <laughs> level of drama. And that's why I love this show. I mean, I think the like in that clip we just played, which like, first of all, like 
you know, all the like blood drinking, horny noises that come with that monologue, but also like the violin just like <laughs> going for it. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. In addition to the horny though, like something that Anne Rice did, I think that's really key. And I also like I'm I'm I've read Interview with a Vampire, but I haven't read and I've read one other book she wrote, which is Lasher, which is Honestly, I read that way too young. It was just like at a house we were taking a vacation in and it is one of the horniest things I've ever read. And I like, I, I, I should not have been allowed to. My parents should have pulled that out of my hands, but they didn't know what I was reading. So um, Anne Rice, real, real cultural awakening for a lot of people. But um, but like she m- combines that like oh, gothic horniness with like really profound meditations on like grief and loss this idea of like if you live forever like what the accumulation of loss and regret could do for you the fact that she wrote this book um while grieving the loss of like a young daughter that she lost to a blood disease to leukemia um and so like the idea of claudia and louis and lestat as like if you live forever and everything dies around you what does that feel like? And so like your grief feels so big, it feels supernatural. And that's, I think something that's on her mind when she's doing vampire fiction is like similar to sort of what Joss Whedon would talk about in terms of Buffy, which is like when you're a teenager, high school feels so dramatic and so scary and so heightened that like, we might as well make the, you know, the bullies monsters, your bad boyfriends, monsters, literal monsters. And like when you're a parent and you've lost a young child or any 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 point of grief that you experience in your life. It's your personal grief. It feels bigger than, you know, anyone else's grief. Your grief feels supernatural, feels huge. And I think that that's a key counterbalance to the like hokey, horny stuff that she does really well is that like profound soul and sorrow that she also has in her work. Did that come through to you in this season of television? Oh, Charles yeah. Holmes? I think all of the characters, especially the main three, Louis, Lestat, Claudia, are so broken in different ways. And the show does a great job of illustrating that if you live forever, the things that keep you alive, whether that's love or lust or blood, those feelings have to be so intense. They have to border on addicting almost. And like how that can be corrosive and how all of these characters are chasing after these different things to hide the fact that they've lost so much. They regret so many of their decisions. I think what really drew me to this show is I think vampires are probably the best monsters we have in terms of talking about different things, whether that's like lust and love or consent. Um, But what happens when you change that character, when you change Louis from white to black, it gives you so much more. It gives you such a layer of like, okay, now not only did Lestat make Louis, but what does it say about the master-subordinate relationship? What does it mean to be in an interracial relationship, especially when you live forever? What does it mean for Louis and Claudia to communicate to Black characters and for Lestat to feel like there's a language that he does not understand in his own home? There's so much that I was just like, oh, this was in the original interview with the vampire, then so much more where I'm like, oh, they did the thing that a good showrunner does. It's like, how can we add? How can we make the everything that this is saying about society feel even more direct in 2022, which is really what I fell in love with when I was watching. 
yeah, I, like, you know, when I saw the casting, I was like, sure, okay, well, like, let's see what they do. You know, and sometimes like casting changes, changing character from white to non-white can just feel like we would, we just want this to be, you know, a little more diverse or whatever it is. And then they're like, no, we're going to weave this into, this is the text of the show. Yeah. It's not just like Louis happens to be a black man from New Orleans. It's like, this is tied into the idea of his identity as a queer man, as a vampire, like all this sort of stuff. This idea that at the end of episode three, I think it is, um, he finally says, I'm a vampire, which is something that he like hasn't said. And the way that like the showrunner talked uh, and Jacob Anderson talked about this idea is like a coming out for, for Louis of like embracing that part of his identity and like what other parts of his identity is he going to embrace i want to ask you about that because like let's talk about these major changes that they that they did all of which pretty much worked for me um the time shift change we already talked about changing the 1970s uh to 2022 but they changed the 1790s in new orleans to uh turn of the century like you know 1920s 19 teens i think a big reason to do that is the so that louis is not a uh an enslaver which he is in the yes. book he has which a plantation he is in the book. yes <laughs> yeah um you know so they're like let's just let's just make it post-civil war let's do that but i i think it's really interesting first of all to make um louis a black man in new orleans but also still keep that idea where like he's running sex workers so he's still like running human beings and so that part where louis carries that sort of guilt that weight with him um in the book translates over into who louis is um in the show what do you think about that charles so i loved a lot of the changes i really do mm -hmm. i think i think um jacob did an amazing job with because like there, I think it's in the first episode. He says I'm a that he says that he's has has to hide that he's a gay black man in in New Orleans. Um, I don't think that the this show is not subtle in any regard. I don't think it's very subtle in its its politics around race, which is like fine. It slaps you in the face where in the first episode or two, I'm like, all right, no, we get it. He's this is Jim Crow. I I, I get it. I, <laughs> and then I have to look up. <laughs> The uh the colors of the uh showrunner and the people and I was like, oh okay, I get why it was less than subtle. But I do think the underpinning of like once maybe they like they sold that and they're just like, This is where we are. I did think as the as the season progressed, it was so interesting seeing Lestat, this character that we are sold to is like this liberal bastion from Paris, who like he gets it. He's one of the good ones. And you're charmed by him. <laughs> like, you know something's yeah. going to break bad, but you're charmed by him. And he's almost, like, laughing this whole time at, like, the casual and very overt racism that's happening at, in New Orleans at this time. And then I was floored when, in the penultimate episode, he's playing chess with Claudia, and Claudia finally beats him, and he explodes. And it's finally the thing that Claudia had been seeing all this time, things that Louis had been, like, he had a blind eye to where it's just like, oh no, Lestat's just as bad as everyone. He's not just mad that a woman beat him at chess. He's mad that a black woman, an un, a woman who was uneducated beat him at chess. And it said so much about this entire series, what it means, 
this power dynamic because the other thing that vampire stories do so well is like they play with the power dynamic of a vampire giving a human powers or an older vampire versus the younger vampire. And what this does is like, what happens when you have a white vampire in a relationship with a black vampire who doesn't understand that even though this black man has all this power now, he still cannot inherit any of the power. He's still a black man when he walks outside. I was like, oh, they did it. Like, that is the thing that they needed to sell to me for this to be successful is to make Louis and Claudia fully realize black characters that aren't, that all of the racism just doesn't disappear because they're now powerful and can live forever. Right. And I think to your point about it not being a subtle show on any uh, level, I thought they used the character of Daniel Malloy, the journalist, like so well, because as they are hammering some of this stuff (laughs) unsubtly for us, Daniel will then sarcastically comment on it in a way that sort of lets the show off the hook. You know what I mean? Where he just like casually grabs his own microphone at one point. He's like, white master black so you know sort yeah. of like like i get it okay you know sort of thing and it's just like it takes a little bit of the tension out of your like how much how much am i being like how do they how righteous do they feel in what they're like preaching to me right now then they're like no we get it we get that we're being over the top and you're like oh okay okay but isn't that part of the charm as well where sometimes i think that like we all want our shows to like be woke and we want them to be subtle and we want them to be saying these profound things. And I'm just like, I don't know if I kind of want that for my vampire show. I kind of like the fact that there is, they're asking all of the problematic questions. That's actually what a lot of good horror and vampire stories do where they're just like, Hey, yeah, it's, this whole sexual dynamic between these two is pretty fucked up. It, isn't it's it pretty fucked up, up that that just yeah. ran to this white woman and is now gaslighting his yeah. lover? Like, it's fucked up. And I was just like, oh, yeah, like, give me that. Like, give me that fucked up kinky <laughs> shit. Like, I don't know. Like, part of me was like, I put on my credit cab. Well, discuss the politics of this. And then other times my girlfriend's like, how do you like it? I'm like, it's lit. Everybody's fucked up. <laughs> I th- I thought it was so interesting too. They were talking about how moving it from the 1790s to the 20th century, they were like, we wanted to find a moment of opulence in New Orleans history or one of several. And an idea they had was like, let's do like the rise of jazz in New Orleans and like what that what that era, what the 20s into the 30s meant um in in New Orleans. And I just thought that was, first of all, I love like the moment that I flipped out, I was watching it with a friend of mine who like loves Anne Rice. We were watching the pilot and I was loving it. We we're having such a good time. And then Louis and his brother do a fucking soft shoe routine at their <laughs> sister's wedding. And I like grabbed my friend by the arm and I was like, there's a dance number. Perfect. Are you kidding me? Perfect. And there's, there's like a musical number in almost every episode, like whether we're at the opera or we're at Louis club, something like that. And I think that's canonically true. Uh, in the books is that Lestat like becomes a a rock star like in Queen of the Damned a movie I've never seen but I've seen I lived through the early aughts so I saw trailers for it Stuart Townsend plays Lestat with like leather pants like coming off his hips like that kind of rock god so like the fact that we get Lestat as this like beautiful singer multiple times in this season is like you know laying track for a potential like future season set in the 70s or something like that but um 
but I just, I, I flipped the music and I thought it was really interesting. They, there's only, I think one actual historical figure in this where they, they use Jelly Roll Morton, who's a real famous jazz player as like the player in the, like, if you've heard of Jelly's Last Jam, et cetera, like a player in the club which is an interesting moment. They're like, we're going to just peg this to one real life historical figure and and he's here and it's Jelly Roll Morton. But okay, Charles Holmes. Yes. Music critic, former Rolling Stone journalist, extraordinaire. What did you think of the use of music uh, in this in this show? I loved it because I think it always had a story reason where it was just like every single time music was employed in this TV series, it was like, oh, the other... But it's about to drop because once him and Paul, Paul and uh, Louis have this dance, and then I'm like, man, my this was around the time my girlfriend started watching it, and she turns to me, she's like, why does everybody treat Louis, uh, Paul so bad? He's so cute, and everybody's so mean to him. <laughs> and I was like, that man is not long for this world. And after they had the no. nice, charming dance, I was just like, yep, he's dead, God, he's done. Or even when um, Lestat. This was the Jelly Roll uh, Morton part where he points to the uh, the pianist and he's like, you're playing wrong. And he's kind of like gaslighting him. And that says so much about who Lestat is. The only humans that he recognizes as having worth are humans with some inherent talent that he can respect. And that generally has to do with music. And him being like, you're playing it wrong. And then telling Louis after, no, actually, he was fine. He was fine. <laughs> But it told yeah. you so much about who Lestat was. It told you so much about Louis being like, this is music that you can't understand. And that thing, by making it an interracial relationship, that wedge that is always between them is that Louis is someone who's trying to always tell Lestat, there's a part of me that you just don't understand. And it's, you don't even want to. You can't even fathom it. And Lestat feeling so angry and resentful of anything that Louis owns that is not his and like mm. him having any type of relationship. It, it was so funny that any single time Louis was next to a black person like when his former lover in the army comes back, how Lestat gets so, so upset when Claudia comes. It's not just bad that Claudia is his new daughter. He's mad that they share this thing between them that that is represented between them being able to communicate uh, by yeah. mind reading. I loved how music was always leading us to these different storylines. Like there was always going to be something that happened when they employed music in that big way. Even in the series uh, season fin- uh, finale, when Lestat and um, Louis have that big dance, they dance. finally reveal that like we're not just the weird, uh, the weird guys who live together were gay. Like I was just like music was always had something narratively to say. On the queerness front, like that idea that like everyone knew, but like they're like, we're now we're going to strip you of any plausible deniability, right? We're going to like make out right in front of you. And now, now we can't even like, no one can exist in the comfortable lie of like who we are and what what we're doing here. And I love that idea that you sort of raised earlier about Lestat and the way that he can pass both as like a white man, but as a bisexual so that he can have a, he can like make out with a woman in, you know, in the club or whatever. And that's something again, that Louis as a gay man, a man who does not have sexual interest in women, like he doesn't have that ability to pass on any front, right? But Lestat can move through a 
a different echelon of privilege because he's white and straight passing and all that sort of stuff. I also thought it was interesting that Lestat, by virtue of making him bisexual, how much he was trying throughout this whole season to reinforce gender norms onto Louis. And like in the same way that um who was his uh who was Lestat uh Lestat's other lover? I forget her name. Antoinette. Antoinette. Antoinette, he loved Antoinette because Antoinette would do what he said. He she was subservient every single way. And it was so funny watching Lestat or sad come home and almost being mad at Louis that he wouldn't be the doting wife who would just like shut up and not say anything and would not challenge him. It almost made him mad that he had an interiority of his own. It was like, I felt like throughout this whole season, Lestat was, he fell in love with a certain version of Louis for being Mm. this dangerous man who was passionate, who always would do what he wanted to do, was stubborn. And the minute that he turns him into a vampire, he starts to hate the very thing that made him fall fall in love with Louis in the first place. That was just such an interesting way for the story to unfold. But I, I mean, the toxic romance, which is a staple of vampire uh, fiction, uh, is the way that Sam Reed, you brought this up at the jump, and it's so key. The, the way that Sam Reed gives us a little stat where we're like, I hate you, but I get it. Like, like you're awful. But if you looked at me like that with and like, I love how they constantly have a wind machine on him. Like no matter where he is, his hair is like blowing back. Um, I'm like, I get it. Like, he's so charming. He's so handsome. He's so intelligent. He's so all these things. He does adore Louie and is completely awful to Louie at the same time. Let's just say this. They do not make performances like what Sam Reed does as Lestat anymore. The just the incredible amount of sex appeal that is dripping from this performance. Where I was just like, <laughs> nah, like this is like some peak 90s rom-com shit. Like you are just oozing sex appeal. Like whatever, <laughs> like he would be doing the worst shit imaginable. And like when Louis like would go back to him like, I get it, dog. Like I get it, bruh. Like I I yeah. understand. I understand. I get it. And so much of this last episode Again, they changed a lot about, you know, the other change that we didn't uh, mention yet is that Claudia is like aged up slightly. She's, you know, when Kirsten Dunst plays her, she's like 11 or something like that. In the book, she's like, I think six or something like that. So Ooh. they made her like 14. Um, so they, they could cast like an actress in her 20s and like have her not have to do a child actor because if you cast a child actor as an immortal vampire, you know, then they're not allowed to grow at all over the, uh, the off season. I mean, to also, to be fair, I'm so glad they aged up Claudia because just what there was Kirsten Dunst did an amazing job in the 1994 movie, but there is a level of like, this person is still a kid actor. This is still a kid actor who is like 10 or 11 trying to play like 30, 40, which I'm just like, I, nah, nah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Kirsten Dunst does a good job, but this is way better. And like when it, when it first happened, this actress, Billy uh, Bass, who I've never seen anything before, that I can recall. She's playing Claudia like so juvenile when we first meet her that I like wasn't sure. I was like, is this going to be good? And then it was great because like as soon as she was just like a little bit older inside that same body, then you're like, you you really needed that initial like very immature performance to make, sell the rest of it. And um, 
I loved the finale because I, I loved a lot of the finale. I have some questions about the very end, which we can talk about in a minute, but like the way in which Louis is like the way in which Claudia can't tell Louis the whole plan because she knows exactly how strung out Louis is on the Lestat juice. And the way in which <laughs> Louis just like, they give Jacob Anderson the like full blown out pupils contacts for most of that episode because he's just like drugged out and high on yeah. the Lestat attention. And the like tangible pull between the two of them and the way in which he like knows that he should kill him. But Claudia is the one who has to do it because like he can't really do it. Um I love I love that they brought it back to that because like we've seen Lestat pull so much shit at this point that like in theory we should just be like super excited and ready for him to die. But he's so charming and like the thing is like Anne Rice in Interview with the Vampire, the Lestat in that book is more overtly a monster than he be, but she like falls in love with her own creation and she's still uh, writing books about she was still writing books about Lestat until like 2018 like she loves Lestat everyone loves Lestat and so I, <laughs> he does such monstrous things but we need to like he he gets his nickname of the brat prince and so you need to be able to like still love him in a way and the fact that the way that like Louis is so sort of hooked on him I think helps us feel hooked on him even as he continues to do deeply, deeply toxic and terrible things. I mean, to be fair, I think what the show also did well is that they did a very good job at showing you how monstrous Louis was in his own right, where Louis is this person where the first time we meet him in the past, he pulls a knife on his um, his mentally ill brother and you're like, yeah. oh, okay, uh, sure. And throughout <laughs> the rest of the show, by the time he goes back to his family and he kicks down the door, he scares his sister, but he also uses the power, being the executor of this estate over them, being like, well, this is my house, watch how you talk to me. You start realizing the cycle of abuse, which I think also a lot of vampire stories, and especially this one, is that this is so much learned behavior where, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the season finale, where it's like, Louis was abusive to his own family. Then he ends up getting abused by Lestat. And now Louis is seemingly back in another relationship where a more powerful vampire might have some level of control over him. I was just like, oh, okay, I see that, even though I have so many questions. <laughs> yeah, okay, so let's talk about that uh, before, we, before we wrap up. I do want to say shout out to maybe my... By the way, this is like a very often very funny show and like and and everything should be funny is how I feel. Like I don't care how gothic and overdramatic and whatever your show should be, it should also be funny in my view. And so when Eric Bogosian as Dan and Malloy says multiple times, "Did you eat the baby?" I was like <laughs> I was rolling on the floor. <laughs> when Louis is just like you hear the thrum of the pulse and the and the little chubby cheeks of the baby and we're all like oh my god is he about to eat that baby and Daniel's just like did you eat the baby though um so good but okay so the the ending of this episode I liked a lot of it I love the Mardi Gras over the top opulence like what a way to go out in New or on the New Orleans storyline uh, Lestat surviving a seemingly unsurvivable thing. That's, you know, that's what happens. Like that all, that all works. Daniel calling Louis out on his bullshit. The, ga the gap between 
the story Louis telling and the facts that Daniel has in front of his face, like all yeah. this sort of stuff. But then we get this like quote unquote twist that ends it, which is that this, you know, assistant to Louis, who has been there the whole time, Rashid, is actually a vampire named Armand. Armand is the character that Antonio Banderas plays in Interview with the Vampire. He's a huge, huge part of the Anne Rice books. But if, when you're adapting something, um, and m- let's just say probably a huge part of the audience watching the show hasn't read the books, the Armand reveal, like the reveal that he's a vampire, which I sort of felt like was revealed when we saw him in the flashback in the 70s. Like we already kind of were like, okay, well, that guy has to be a vampire too, right? But the v- reveal that he's Armand, I'm like, I don't know that that's the big like dun-dun-dun moment that they think it is. It was like my only... That and Jacob Anderson's pronunciation of Divisadero in San Francisco were like the only two question marks I had about the season. How did you like you a non a non book reader hadn't hadn't maybe even seen Antonio Banderas do Armand yet? Like how how did that reveal sit with you? So I did before I before, while I was waiting to get screeners for the season finale, I booted up the 1994 version, so I saw Antonio Banderas, and I'm just like. All right, I guess that character's coming in. And then they ended the penultimate episode with the dun dun dun, Rashid is a vampire. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't know if that's as like cool as you guys think it is, but okay. So like sure. Yeah. We, we got the season finale. Sure. And then once they did it together, like, dun dun dun, what you thought was true. He is a vampire. I was like, Oh, okay. I sure is not <laughs> It's not how I would have ended the first season of TV. But yeah, all right. Because this is nothing against the actor uh, who plays Rashid. But he just didn't get enough screen time. Or at least... He didn't pop, pop. Yeah. He didn't pop enough for me to give a fuck. So I was just like, he needed to have some level. And I also think what is unfair, what is unfair for any actor is like Sam Reed gets to get so many scenes. He gets to chew. He gets to cook. He gets to serve. Whoever Armand is, if you're going to be like, and this is Louis' new lover, has to have been built up. So we're just like, oh shit, two hot guys about to go at it. It's lit. <laughs> and instead, we're just like, oh, that's the guy who's just been like looking at <laughs> Daniel Weird for the whole season, being like, I hate you. Like, it fell a little flat for me if I was going to be a yeah. hater about anything. It's not a hater thing. It's like, we loved the season. The very final note is just not, I was, it didn't send me out on the high. I don't know what it would have been. Like, maybe just like, maybe we should have revealed that earlier, made it less of a like, I mean, I think it is cool for him to be like, AI can also fly. I actually don't remember what that's called. It's like the air gift or whatever it's it was the, called. Yeah, it's like, the gift of something. And I'm just like, just say you can fly <laughs> on me. It's fine. <laughs> But then also, like, he can withstand sunlight. Like, that's kind of, that's, kind, you know, when Daniel's like, but I saw you in the sun. He's like, as we get older, we can, and I'm like, that's cool. That's kind of, that's kind of game changing and cool. But yeah, like, what's, like, for Louis to be like, this is the love of my life. I'm like, after Lestat? <laughs> I mean, my, my other question with that, too, is just, does it kind of burst your bubble where I was like, they're not killing Lestat? I, like, I've already watched the movie, but for people who don't, I'm just like, you should probably end not on a, yeah, well, Stas already dead. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's actually the thing that I think would be the TV show thing to do is like, how can they kill their most electric character in season two? He's like, I'm back, bitch. Uh, well, 
I hate I hate a fake out death on television. So I'm all for where they're like, no, he's not really dead. Don't worry. It's like I'm still scarred from that year where they tried to make me think Jon Snow is dead. And I'm like, I don't believe you. And they're like, no, really, Jon Snow's dead. And I'm like, right, here's no, the thing. he's not. That's different. Vampire stories are different because vampire stories are built. I'm <laughs> being like, your favorite character's dead. Next week, psych, he's back because he's a vampire. That's what I love about <laughs> Vampire Diaries. And I'm also realizing now, I'm just like, oh, wait. Is Damon just supposed to be like Broke Boy Lestat? Is that why? Oh, I yeah. Oh, uh, yes. I didn't realize that until I watched this. I was like, oh, that's just Lestat. I think all, like, I think also Spike on Buffy. Like, I think there are so many... Lestat is the blueprint for so many things that come after. Oh, Spike it, is Lestat. What is happening? Is everything by Lestat? <laughs> I mean, kind of. I like that's the template, honestly. Um, so I'm I like honestly, it's ridiculous that Sam Reed was able to Sam Reed, who's Australian, by the way. Oh, I promised someone I would do accent corner on this. Um, I Jacob Anderson, who's British, I thought did a really good like you know New Orleans. Wait, really? You know, turn of the century. Yeah. Like, I thought his accent was really good. If right? I was going to pick, if I was going to pick Nitz, my man Jacob, sometimes his uh, New Orleans accent would, like, especially when he was a little younger, would go from, like, peak New Orleans to, like, dude, I meet at my barbershop in Brooklyn. He's like, I'm going to cut you, bro. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> what's going on? Okay. All right. <laughs> then, I will, then I will pick some Nitz about Sam Reed. Okay. So here's, here's my accent philosophy. Okay. If your accent is consistent, you're right. Jacob Anderson's accent wanders over the map and decades a little bit. But if your accent is consistent, I can just be lulled into the fantasy of what that accent is. But I heard from a couple like literal actual French people where they're like, I don't know what that accent is. That is not <laughs> a French accent. And I'm like, you know what? I believe you. I believe you, a French person, that this is not a good French accent, but it's a consistent accent. Sam Reed's Australian. He is consistently do- making the same vowel sounds. And so I'm just sort of like, I believe it. I I I buy it. Whatever it is. His uh, you know, maybe this is what a French accent sounds like when you have fangs. Who's to say? But um, but yeah, I I I, I yeah, Sam Reed, incredible, incredible In stuff. Fairness though, after watching Tom Cruise have no <laughs> accent at all. None not whatsoever. even try. He would just not try. <laughs> Going to Sam Reed, like I was yeah. just like, I can excuse you if you sound like Pepe Le Pew sometimes. Like it'll, it is, <laughs> it's fine. Also, when you look this good and you're just oozing this much sex appeal, the the accent is important, but it's not the most important thing. Hot people can get away with a lot, guys. That's sadly the society. That's just a fact of the world we live in. All right, before we go, one last one last question. I didn't prep you for this at all, but I just was curious. Do you have like one moment uh, of of the season where you're like, this this is this is it? I can't believe this is happening. What is it? I already talked about it, but this was the moment when the show went from something that I was just like, oh, this is cool, to like boot up prestige te- TV. Where is Joe? I need to talk about it. <laughs> when Claudia, because I'm with you in the in the first half of the season, Claudia was getting on my nerves. Where I'm just like, this is obviously like a 20 year old act- actress trying to act like 13, 14. It's not working. But then once she ages up, 
And like she's going toe to toe with Lestat. She's like, you don't know where I've been, cuz. Like I was like, <laughs> I'm in. And then when they had like the the chess match, and Lestat is like, you can't win. Da-da-da-da-da. And she doesn't do the last move. She just walks away. Like that actress killed it. Let me get her name, uh, Bailey Bass. Like, oh my god, I was like, this is sick. You're not gonna make the last move. And then when Lestat is freaking the fuck out, I'm like, oh my God, Claudia, team Claudia, let's fucking go. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being a dude about this, but I was so hyped. I love it. I love it. <laughs> what was the moment for you where you're just like, oh, this show is the best? I mean, I'm, I already mentioned the like soft shoe routine, but also I want to say, I think it's episode, it, I mean, it has to be episode two. I think it is when like Louis and Lestat, it's either episode two or three. They have a fight. It's two, I think. They have a fight. And then later, cut to later, they're closed coffins. <laughs> and they start talking <laughs> to each other in a real, like, don't go to bed angry kind of moment. But the coffins stay closed. So you're just hearing them talking from their separate individual coffins. I I died. I thought it was incredible. That was actually when, to, to your point, I think sometimes when people make shows that are supposed to be romantic or horny people forget that so much of romance so much of like sex and everything is deeply embarrassing and can be very very funny especially when you have an intimate relationship with with someone and i think this show was so good at showing the fact that like no lestat and louis have to laugh with each other they have to have the moments that are like in between the moments where they're like having sex or like smoldering at each other and that scene was a perfect example of like oh no they're a couple this is what a real couple does after a fight being like hey uh can we not go to bed mad please so yes i that scene i was so charmed yeah and like and and even like the early Claudia stuff where you're just like seeing them be like two dads. <laughs> two <laughs> like, gay dads. And it's like one yeah. of them it like really <laughs> wants the child and the other was like, I liked it when it was just the two of us. I was just like, I know. Because that's the thing about the 1994 one pet, that makes no sense. If, if they're not a couple, it is just two uncles raising this weirdo kid. When it's an actual couple, it is so much, so much of the humor was like, Louis being enamored with his new baby and being like, I've never loved anything so much. <laughs> and then Lestat just like pouting and being like, he used to love me this much. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was great. Okay. Well, that has been our love letter to Interview with a Vampire. Tune in to see if I convinced Charles to watch The Witches Show that is coming in January that is set in this universe. Let me tell you, yes. you are my Willy Wonka. And like, I, anytime you're watching a show, I'm looking for the golden ticket. Okay. That's how much I trust your recommendations. Charles. <laughs> uh, at the very least, uh, Charles and I have a couple other things that we're going to collab on in prestige feed that I'm really excited about. And at bare minimum, I feel like we have to come back for season two of this oh. show that we both love so much. So I yeah. am tapped in your honor. <laughs> <laughs> Pod trip to New Orleans? Who says no? Not me. Okay. I call um, up call him Van. He he will be. Yeah, let's get Van. Do you remember I, this is still the podcast, I swear. Remember when uh Steve was like, I'm going to New Orleans and Van's like, Oh cool, you're going to my mom's house, she's gonna make you some gumbo. We we're just like, what is can, can never forget. <laughs> I would love to meet Van's mom. And wait, actually I can't go to New Orleans because I'm gonna start acting like a Lestat and they will literally run me out of there. Okay, well, the world is not ready for your smoldering uh, look. I've seen it. I know the world's not ready. 
Thank you to Charles Holmes for doing this with me. Thanks to our producer on this episode, Jesse Lopez. And we'll be back in the feed with a bunch of other Prestige TV very soon. Bye. Peace. Peace.